Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. Today we're pleased to have with us attorney Dennis J. Wall from the law offices of Dennis J. Wall, a professional association with offices in both Orlando and Winter Springs, Florida. In addition to practicing law, Mr. Wall is a published author, speaker, and consultant on the subjects of insurance coverage and insurer bad faith. He has over 30 years in insurance practice and also writes two widely respected web blogs. One is Insurance Claims and Issues, and the other is Insurance Bad Faith Claims Law. We are here today because of Dennis's web blog, Insurance Claims and Issues. This blog has been recognized as the highest-ranked and the most popular insurance law web blog on the American Bar Association's website. Today's insurance law topic is centered on any legal implications of blogging, which continues to grow in popularity among all sectors of the population. Now, leading off with today's first question is Brendan Noonan. Hey, uh, Dennis, uh, writing a blog obviously takes a lot of time, which is a precious asset for any practicing attorney. What led you to invest the time in your blog? Three things, Brendan. As usual with human beings, we have more than one reason for doing anything. For me, writing a web blog came about because I wanted to do it for advertising, to make a contribution, and for self-fulfillment or self-expression. For advertising purposes, at the time I started my web blog, it was in September 2006. The content was not directly regulated by, for example, in my case, the Florida Bar. There are recommendations pending at this time, but in front of the Florida Bar and by the Florida Bar, as I understand it, to regulate weblogs, among other things, as curtailing the advertising or restricting the advertising content of them. I will not comment on those proposals, but they are pending. So when I first started out, one of the motivations was advertising. And I'll be commenting later in this podcast, if the opportunity arises, on the implications for professional responsibility considerations and bar association requirements regarding weblogs. One of my sec- a second motivation for me was to make a contribution. Each of us, I think, has something that we can bring to the table to assist other people in their lives. And for me, there are not many things that I can bring to the table. But one of them concerns insurance coverage and insurance bad faith issues because I've dealt with those things for over 30 years as a lawyer and as an expert witness and as a consultant. So the second motivation for me was to make a contribution. The third motivation was... Self-fulfillment or self-expression, for me, that requires a little bit of pause because it's different for me as it is for each individual person, what it's meant by self-fulfillment or self-expression. For me, it's trying to have the most accurate reporting that you can, something that I try to do as an attorney, something I try to do in every aspect, well, frankly, of my life. I have opinions about many things, as people who know me will probably tell you, but when I post on my weblog, I try to present the facts of a given insurance coverage issue or insurance coverage question rather than any opinions about them. And I try to post all of the facts, whether they're good or bad, from my own personal perspective, my own personal opinion, because I think that's what the readers want to see is what are the pros and cons of that situation or that insurance coverage question. And so... That's the approach that I have taken. Those three things, I think, have motivated the advertising, making a contribution, and if you want an increased opportunity for self-expression or self-fulfillment. 
Okay, now, Dennis, anyone can post their thoughts on a topic on any given time through blogging. And as a result of that, can we expect to see an increase in liability issues or insurance claims as a result? On one level, of course, we can all expect to see an increase in liability issues and insurance claims as a result of blogging. However, I found something interesting in preparing for this podcast. I ran some searches on multi-state insurance cases and federal insurance cases, which are basically all of the reported insurance cases across the nation. One of my searches was on whether the words blogging or weblog appeared in any reported case in the last two years. The result gave only one case that ever talked about blogging or weblogs, and that interpreted the term or used the term weblogs. And it's a recent case. The citation is Chicago Title Insurance Company versus Lexington and Concord Search and Abstract Limited Liability Company, 513 Fed Sub 2nd 304. That's decided by the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, April 13, 2007. That case didn't involve an actual insurance coverage issue, actually. It involved a solo attorney who issued title policies, and the title insurance company attached a copy of this individual's weblog post describing the history of his previous corporation that was involved in that lawsuit. So it's interesting that it was used, if you will, regarding that person, almost used against him, but there was no insurance issue involved. And I have not found any insurance case in the country that has yet to address the issue of any kind of insurance coverage for any claims based on blogging or weblogs. Although I, too, am among those many people who think that there probably will be such claims and such issues, we haven't seen them yet. Dennis, uh, last year there was a controversy about the anonymous blogging by the CEO of a publicly traded company. As blogging continues to grow, do you see that it could become a factor in lines such as directors and officers' liability? Yes, it could become a factor. The directors and officers' insurance coverage intricacies are beyond the scope of our podcast. But I think it will greatly help to understand for the listeners to understand directors and officers' insurance coverage by reviewing the very long but easily released on March 25, 2008, in the case of Qualcomm Incorporated versus certain underwriters at Lloyd's of London, California 4th District Court of Appeal, March 25, 2008. Now, basically, very simply put, as outlined by the 4th District, by the 4th DCA in California in that case, DNO requires a loss, quote-unquote, including, as a policy in that case said, damages, judgments, settlements, and defense costs from a, quote-unquote, claim, which, again, a policy in that case included a civil lawsuit, And then thirdly, although there are more considerations, not explicitly mentioned in that case that it would be based on a claimed, quote, wrongful act, close quote, of directors and officers. To my mind, there's a real insurance coverage question whether or not a weblog posted by a director or officer meets a particular director and officer policy's definition of a, quote, unquote, wrongful act, among other things. And it's important to keep in mind that DNO coverage is often specific to the corporate policyholder that purchases it. There are no standardized forms really in use. They're really tailored to the individual needs of the particular corporation that buys it. What issues do lawyers who blog need to consider to avoid subjecting themselves to professional discipline or even lawsuits? I think lawyers in particular need to determine whether they're going to write about fact versus opinion. 
again, my perspective has been one of a reporter of objective or totality of a given issue, whether I like them or not. That includes the facts you personally may like and the facts you don't like. And it's not about your past and your record of accomplishment, but considering the effects of the insurance coverage issues, if that's in my case, if that's what you're interested in, the subject of your post, the subject of your weblog, what effect they have, those things have, in the lives of the people who read your posts. In other words, I would think that lawyers in particular need to bear in mind to focus their attention in writing a post on how the words will affect the readers and their lives and their concerns. As an example, I faced some insurance coverage issues after the 2004 hurricanes here in Florida. Charlie, Francis, Ivan, although that missed Central Florida and went up to the Panhandle, and Jean. And I try to mention from time to time my own experience when I post about hurricanes and insurance coverage issues to illustrate the insurance coverage issue I'm writing about and how my experience affects or illustrates how this affects the outcome of a claim and not to begin at the outset by saying to myself that I'm going to write a post because of my own personal insurance coverage experience. Now, there's one seeming exception I can think of that I have done. And it's not really an exception to my saying that lawyers who blog need to consider reporting all the facts, and that is an exception of a recent Fifth Circuit federal appellate judge's opinion in which the appellate court actually affirmed a Mississippi federal trial judge ruling. But in issuing a long opinion affirming that ruling, the three federal appellate judges wrote that even though the Mississippi trial judge had ruled that Mississippi insurance law would not apply what was called an anti-concurrent cause exclusion. In their opinion, the opinion of the three federal appellate judges, Mississippi law did allow it. And none of the three of them are Mississippi lawyers. In fact, all three of them are from Texas. Now, in light of all those circumstances, I did post that their opinion was probably of questionable precedential authority. A lawyer's way of saying, we wonder why they wrote this opinion. But... They wrote it, and it's there, and it's entitled to all the respect that it deserves. That's the closest they've ever come to expressing a personal opinion about it. I think you have to go back to the facts. Hey, Dennis, thanks very much, and we appreciate the extra research you put into the podcast today. Final question, any other legal issues or concerns either the insurance industry or attorneys would have? Yes, John. Anyone who blogs should first ask themselves the question that we started off with in this podcast, which is why are they doing it? If they're there on the web to talk about facts of a given issue, that's one thing. If the posters, the weblogs, the bloggers are there to vent their personal opinions, then they should perhaps consider that there may be unpleasant consequences from venting. And most of all, for attorneys, I think they should expect increased regulation by bar organizations. The largest firms, according to the American Bar Association Journal Online, 25% of them have blogs right now. The number is increasing, and the largest firms publish at this time 110 blogs, again, according to the American Bar Association Journal. They employ people for the purpose of understanding how to comply with regulations concerning those blogs. Sole practitioners like myself spend a great deal more of their own personal time invested in learning what the regulations may be and trying to comply with them. So it's kind of an uneven playing field where the larger law firms have people employed for the purpose 
of showing weblog compliance with bar regulations that are more and more being introduced into the field. Okay, thanks very much, Dennis. That was Dennis J. Wall, who was a sole practitioner in Orlando and Winter Springs, Florida. Special thanks today to Brenda Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. And if you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 